Hello friends, welcome to another session on Survey of Theology. My name is Stephen Cook and uh, we're going to pick up in our next lesson and we're going to talk about four aspects of righteousness and we're going to talk about sanctification. Uh, and just a reminder that this is uh, primarily being taught for uh, students at Tyndale Theological Seminary. And so this is an undergraduate course that is being taught. So uh, today we're going to get into some technical language and some technical concepts. Now I'm going to touch on them lightly because again this is a survey of theology. We are not going into great depths on this, but you can find lots of material on this. And again, I would refer you to like uh, Chafer's uh, Systematic Theology, his major Bible themes which we're using. I would recommend also uh, uh, Ryrie's Basic Theology, as well as Dr. Leitner's Handbook of Evangelical Theology and other works as well. So uh, there's abundant material out there for you to chase this material down and to check me out on all of these things. And these are very important concepts, by the way, very important biblical concepts. Now, in Scripture, there are four aspects of righteousness that are mentioned. Uh, the Bible reveals that God himself is righteous, that God himself is righteous. Um, and he is declared to be righteous by nature and just in all his ways. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, Righteous and upright is he, speaking of God. That righteous and upright is he. And so we should understand that God is righteous in his nature. That it is the very character of, right, uh, of God to be righteous. Psalm 119.137 says, Righteous are you, O Lord. Righteous are you, O Lord. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 142, you, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. Isaiah 45, 21, uh, it says um, down here at the bottom of the verse, uh, it says, a righteous God and Savior, uh, there is none except me. And so God is a righteous God. John 17, 25, Jesus referred to the Father, uh, calling him, O righteous Father. So we should understand that God is righteous in his very nature. And because he is righteous in nature, he is going to be just in all his ways. Psalm 145 verse 17 says, The Lord is righteous, notice, in all his ways. That he is righteous in all his ways. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, let's define righteousness, and this definition I lifted out of my doctoral dissertation because my doctoral dissertation was on the attribute of God's righteousness, and so I just lifted that over and brought this in here. So divine righteousness may be uh, defined as the intrinsic, immutable, moral perfection of God from which he commands all things in heaven and earth and declares as just that which uh, conforms to his righteousness and is sinful that which deviates. Now, to say that it's intrinsic is to say that it is innate within God. It is part of his very character. It is part of his very nature. And it is immutable, which means it never changes. He has been, is, and forever will be uh, perfect, perfect in righteousness. That it is the intrinsic, immutable, moral perfection of God from which he commands all things. And so out of his uh, moral character, out of his perfect righteous character, 
he sets forth commands or directives. And so when we as believers are walking in conformity with God's directives, then we are living out the righteous life. We are right because we uh, conform to a standard. What is the standard? Uh, The standard is God's directives as set forth in his revealed word, which are born out of his righteous character, his very righteous nature. So to say that something is right or wrong assumes a standard. To say something is right or to say something is wrong assumes a standard. And so the standard uh, that is set forth in the scripture is God's word himself, his directives, how he directs us. But again, that we should understand that, uh, that from his very nature, he commands all things in heaven and on earth. So it covers all, it covers everything, everywhere. And uh, that what he commands, that what he sets forth, that it declares as just that which conforms to his righteousness and as sinful that which deviates. Now, one discovers throughout the Bible that righteousness and justice are related words, that they are related words. So the former speaks of God's moral character, whereas the latter speaks of the actions that flow out of his character. And we might put it this way, that whatever God's righteousness requires, his justice executes, either to approve or to reject, to bless or to condemn. So we have first the righteousness of God. Second, we have the the self-righteousness of man, the self-righteousness of man. And, uh, and we see this in a number of passages, by the way. But the reality is, is that when we talk about uh, the sinfulness of man, and I'm cruising through some scriptures here in my uh, uh, NASB while I'm talking, uh, trying to get to Isaiah 64, 6. But the reality is, is that by our own works, by our own efforts, we can never, never, never measure up to the perfect righteousness of God. And so, for example, we think of a passage in Isaiah 64, 6, if I can get there, if you'll just bear with me here for just a moment. In Isaiah 64, 6, uh, the, uh, Isaiah writes, uh, he says, all of our, uh, he says, uh, for all of us have become like one who is unclean. And notice he says, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. All our righteous deeds, not all of our sin, Notice what he's looking at here. All of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Now, the translators of the NASB have been very kind to us uh, in which they've translated uh, this Hebrew word here as filthy garment. But the Hebrew word literally means a menstrual rag, a menstrual rag. And so what it means is that if we were to take all of our righteous deeds, put them into a bag, bring them to God and hand them to him and demand the trade-in value, it would be worth one menstrual rag, which is not acceptable. Um, in God's sight. But that's the reality of it, is that we are saved. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us. God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Let me say that one more time. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Our good works will never save us. Never save us. Our, all of our righteous deeds are, are tantamount to a filthy rag. But, this, but the reality is, is that we are all sinful before God. In Genesis 6, 5, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart 
was only evil continually. The Bible does not present a flattering view of mankind. We are sinners in Adam, sinners by nature, and sinners by choice. And I'll unpack that here more just a little bit. But in order to come before God, we must accept the divine estimation of who we are. Uh, We must accept the divine estimation of who we are because God and his word literally define reality. And what God says of us is the true picture, and that is what we must come. That is what we must come to. We must come to understand. Well, what does the Scripture say about us? First Kings eight forty six says, "And when they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin. There is no man who does not sin." Psalm one thirty verse three: If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the answer is no one. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9, Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? The answer, no one. Ecclesiastes seven twenty. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on the earth who continually does good and who never sins. Uh, Romans 3, 9, uh, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. That's all humanity. He says, for there is none righteous, not even one. There is none righteous, not even one. And then down in verse 23, he says, for all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 5, 6 through 10, we have four words that that Paul uses to describe our sinful condition, uh, and they're not flattering by any means. He says in Romans 5, 6, For while we were still helpless, helpless, we cannot save ourselves. We absolutely cannot save ourselves. We are helpless. He says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. That's me, that's you, that's all humanity. For one will hardly die for a a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, sinners, that's the third word, Christ died for us. He died for us when we were ungodly, when we were helpless, ungodly sinners. He says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by, uh, by his life. And so not a very flattering picture. Um, Galatians 3.22, But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Faith is not a work. Ephesians 2.8.9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, Faith does not save. Christ saves. Faith is merely the channel, the instrument, through which we receive salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, not of yourselves. Salvation is the gift of God. It's the gift. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. It was accomplished for us by Jesus Christ upon the cross who paid our sin debt in full, in full. And he completed our salvation at the cross. In John chapter 19, verse 30, the last thing Jesus said on the cross, one word in the Greek, to telestai, 
Uh, in the Greek, it's in the perfect tense, which means it is a past action, but the emphasis is upon abiding results. With the, stand, with, the, with the fact that it was accomplished then, it was finished. It's translated by three words. It is finished, and it stands finished today. It was finished then, it's finished today, it'll be finished tomorrow. And so there's nothing that we add to it, there's nothing that we take from it, and God has so worked that men should fear him. But our salvation was accomplished in full uh, on the cross by the Lord Jesus Christ. He gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. We get the benefit but all the credit and glory belong to him. And so the reality is that everyone is shut up under sin. So we are all guilty before God. So God is righteous. <clears throat> Excuse me. Man is sinful. And here's the problem. We cannot overcome that barrier. We can't. We can't. But God found a way. <laughs> Isn't this wonderful? God found a way. Now let's talk about imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness means, let me give it to you in quick summary form here, that God takes his righteousness, his righteousness, and he gives it to us as a gift. It's a gift. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't work for it. And he gives it to us freely. And in that sense, God can, ex can accept us before his, before his throne, and we can be declared righteous, not because of any righteousness of our own, derived from a life of good works, adherence to any system of law, but because of the righteousness that comes to us as a gift. And so imputation here, uh, we're going to talk about the imputed righteousness of God. Imputation is the biblical teaching that one person can be charged or credited with something that rightfully belongs to another, which is not originally or antecedently his own. You have to follow me on this. It's getting a little technical here, but you must follow me on, on this. This is very, very important, uh, biblically speaking. <clears throat> Excuse me again. So imputation, imputation is the biblical teaching, again, that one person can be charged or credited with something that rightfully belongs to another, which is not originally his or her own. In other words, I'm going to receive eternal life, but, but I can't produce eternal life, but I'm going to receive it as a gift. Uh, I can't produce the perfect righteousness of God, but guess what? I'm going to receive it as a gift. This is how wonderful God is. This is our good God. This is our gracious God. This is our loving God, our kind God. He's so wonderful. Now, the word imputation is actually an accounting term. It's actually an accounting term. So an accountant uh, might understand this uh, a little bit better than anybody else, but it is, in fact, an accounting term used in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Genesis 15, 6, we see of Abraham where it says, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. He reckoned it to him as righteousness. And we see the same thing over in uh, Romans 4, 3, where Paul uses the Greek verb logizomai, it says, and what does the scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, the Hebrew word uh, kashav, kashav uh, according to Hallett, the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, means to impute or to reckon to. The Greek word logizomai, according to Badag, the uh, Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, a Greek-English lexicon, 
of the New Testament and other early Christian literature, defines it this way, quote, to determine by mathematical process, to reckon, to calculate, frequently in a transferred sense, end quote. <clears throat> now, now, Paul uses another word. He uses the Greek word elegeo, elegeo, which according to uh, Badag means to charge with a financial obligation to charge to the account of someone, to charge to the account of someone. So Paul tells his friend Philemon concerning uh, Philemon's runaway slave Onesimus, Paul says, if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Did you catch that? Onesimus is the one who is in debt. And Paul says, don't you charge that to him. He says, if he, if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that, elegeo, charge that to my account. You see that? So Paul hasn't done anything wrong, but Paul will take the responsibility for the debt. Paul will personally pay for uh, any wrong or anything that Onesimus may owe his friend Philemon. So here Paul is saying that he will pay for any wrongful actions committed by Onesimus. Now in Scripture there are three major imputations. Again, you have to follow me on this. There are three major imputations on this uh, that concern our relationship with God. One could argue there's other imputations, but we're going to look at three that are of major, major theological importance. First is the imputation of Adam's original sin to every member of the human race. It is the imputation of Adam's original sin. So the sin that Adam committed in the Garden of Eden is transferred to all of his descendants because as goes Adam, so goes the human race. As goes Adam, so goes the human race because we are all descendants of Adam. So his sin becomes our sin. <clears throat> so this is the imputation of Adam's original sin to every member of the human race. This is why Paul says, uh, in Romans 5.12, therefore just as through one man. Now both Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord, but Adam was the spiritual head of the relationship of, of the marriage. And that's the way it is in marriage, that God has set up the man to be the spiritual head, to be the leader. And so when the failure occurred, God didn't come to Adam and Eve together. He came to Adam. He said, where are you, Adam? And so the responsibility ultimately fell to him and so he is the spiritual head of the human race, both federally and similarly. So therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Well, when did we all sin? We all sinned when Adam sinned. And so his sin becomes our sin. By the way, let me point something out here as I'm about to get to, because we're about to receive, we're about to look at how we're going to receive the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness is credited to us. And so that is the basis for justification. So it is another man's sin that is the primary basis for condemnation. It is another man's act of righteousness that is the basis for justification. And so we are, we are in the middle of this. Now, we, we are not neutral. We have a choice in the matter because we are born in Adam. That is our default setting. But we can come to God by means of faith in Christ. And at the moment of faith in Christ, the very righteousness of Christ is given to us. And we are transferred from being in Adam to being in Christ. Again, you have to think biblically. The Bible frames this 
for us in such a way that helps us to understand what's going on here. What's what's the moving parts? What do we what do we have to understand? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15:21, for since by a man, talking about Adam, came what? Death. Spiritual death, separation from God in time, physical death, the separation of the soul from the body, second death, separation from God in eternity in the lake of fire. For since by a man came death, by a man, that's Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So Adam is the first Adam. Christ is the second and the last Adam. And so the last Adam, Jesus, accomplished what the first Adam failed to do. That is a perfect walk of righteousness. But the reality is, is that we are all in Adam. That is a positional truth. That is a positional truth. And positional truths are very important in Scripture. It is an identification truth. And we talk about identity all the time. Oh, I'm identified with this group. I'm a certain gender. I'm a certain race. I'm a certain color. I'm a certain age. Whatever. People get into identity issues all the time. Well, the Bible addresses these in the ultimate sense, in the sense from divine viewpoint of ultimate reality. We're talking about things of a metaphysical nature here. And so he says, for as in Adam all die. Well, we're all in Adam. That is our identity. We're born into that family. We're born into that in this world. But we can also be identified with Christ, and that is we turn to Christ as Savior. We believe that he died for us, that he bore our sin upon the cross, that that he was punished in our place, and so we come to him with the empty hands of faith, and we trust in Christ and Christ alone. And at that moment, we are then moved from being in Adam to being in Christ. Colossians 1.13 says that we are transferred from Satan's kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. But again, we must understand these imputations. Again, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So the imputation of Adam's original sin means that every biological descendant of Adam is charged or credited with the sin that he committed in the Garden of Eden, which plunged the human race into spiritual death. Jesus is the only exception. He's the only exception, for he is truly human, truly human. We've covered this in the doctrine of the hypostatic union, that it's undiminished deity combined together forever with perfect humanity. But he is perfectly human, but he was born without a biological father. Joseph was not his biological father. He was his legal father, but he was not his biological father. Uh, And so he was specially created by means of an act of God, the Holy Spirit, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, Parthenogenesis, virgin conception, virgin born, and Mary is Christotokos. She's the bearer of the humanity of Christ. And so Jesus could come into this world and he was born uh, without Adam's sin. Adam's sin was not passed on because it's passed on from the father to the child. And so it's dead uh, by means of the spiritual, excuse me, by is the means by which Adam's original sin is passed on uh, to the child. And so, but Jesus, without a biological father, could be born into this world perfectly, truly human, minus Adam's original sin, and he committed no sin throughout his life. You see, we're sinners in three ways. We're sinners in Adam, sinners by nature. We have a sinful nature, a proclivity to sin, and we are sinners by choice because we commit acts of sin. But Jesus didn't do any of that. He didn't have Adam's original sin, he didn't have a sin nature, and he committed no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin 
became sin on our behalf. Hebrews 4.15 says he was tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 3.5 tells us that in him there is no sin. So Jesus is the exception. Second, the second major imputation is the imputation of all sin to Jesus on the cross. The imputation of all of our sin to Jesus upon the cross, which would include Adam's original sin, by the way. So we talk about the imputation of all sin. So just as Adam's sin is imputed to all of humanity, all of humanity's sin, both both Adam's sin and our personal sin, because we commit sin, all of our sin was placed upon Jesus upon the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself. Who reconciled us to himself. We don't reconcile ourselves to God. It's impossible. Impossible. Uh, But God reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. You can hear the clap of thunder out there from a storm that's going on. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, I want to unpack 2 Corinthians 5.21. So you have to bear with me for a little bit here. It says here in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin, that's Jesus, Um, He who knew no sin, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. What does that mean? It means that Jesus came into this world, minus Adam's original sin, minus his sin nature, and lived a perfectly righteous life, committed no sin. He went to the cross and he died, not for his own sin. Not for his own sin. He went to the cross and he died for who? For me, for you, for everyone. And so he goes to the cross, and all of our sin, God takes the sin of all humanity from from Genesis through Revelation, all time. He takes all sin from all humanity, and he places it upon Christ, and he judges him while he is on the cross. And so Jesus lives a perfectly righteous life. And in John 10, he tells us, he says, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down. And he willingly went to the cross. He willingly went to the cross. He could have stopped at any time. As God, he could have just uh, willed it away. Snapped his fingers, boom. All of, the, all of the illegal trials, everything immediately just gone. But he willingly went to the cross. And he endured the mockings. He endured the six illegal trials. Because there were six illegal trials all in one night during the nighttime, which was illegal. You weren't supposed to do that either under either under Roman or Jewish law. That was illegal. But they don't care. So he goes before these trials. And there were three civil trials and three religious trials. The three civil trials, they all found him innocent. The three uh, religious trials, they all found him guilty. It was a total farce the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the human race. But Jesus surrendered himself to that because he knew it was the Father's will. And remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed to the Father. He said, if if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but thy will be done. 
And so ultimately he surrenders himself to the will of the Father. And it was the will of the Father that he go to the cross, that he die a penal substitutionary death. Penal, he bore the penalty for our sins. Substitutionary, he died in our place, the just for the unjust, Peter tells us. And it was a death. He bore the penalty for our sin. And so he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So all of the sin of humanity is taken together and is placed upon Christ. And Christ went through the illegal trials. He went through the mockings. He went through the beatings. He went through the twisting of the crown of thorns upon his head. He went through the scourging. He went through the crucifixion. He went through it all for you, for me, to bear the penalty uh, for our sins. It's just such an amazing thing to think about. And as he hung between heaven and earth from noon to three, the sky grew dark, and God the Father takes all of our sin and he places them upon Christ. Christ was made to receive our sins. They're not his sins, they're our sins. And he bore the penalty, and he was judged. The wrath of God was poured out upon Christ, and he was made to bear the penalty for our sins. And he cried out to the Father, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he was judged. He bore that penalty for me and for you. And so we have the imputation of all sin to Jesus upon the cross. By the way, the judgment of, of, our, of our sin upon the cross doesn't make us righteous. It doesn't save anybody. It makes us savable. It makes us savable because he takes that which is offensive and he removes it. He judges it. And the death of Christ is sufficient for all. Unlimited atonement. It is sufficient for all, but it is effective only to those who believe. It is effective only to those who believe. And salvation is not merely subtraction. It's not merely the removal of sin. It's addition. It's the addition of righteousness, God's righteousness. And it is the addition of life, eternal life, you see. And that comes to the one who believes in Christ. It comes to the one who believes in Christ. Hebrews 2.19 says that he has tasted death for everyone. And 1 John 2.2 says he himself is the propitiation, halasmos, the satisfaction for our sins. What Jesus did on the cross satisfied the Father. We We don't have to work for it. He did it. He himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So God the Father judged Jesus in our place. Mark 10.45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In Romans 5.6, Paul says, For while we were still helpless, at, Christ, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And the word for there translates the Greek preposition huper, huper, which is the preposition, uh, commonly understood, of substitution. And it means that Christ died as a substitute for who? For the ungodly, for sinners, for the enemies of God. And 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 uh, that Christ died for our sins. Again, the preposition who paired there, the, the preposition of substitution. First Peter 3.18, Christ died uh, for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. 
Christ is the just. He died for, who pair, the same Greek preposition. He died the just in place of the unjust. That's me, that's you, that's all humanity. And so his death upon the cross cancels our sin debt. It cancels our sin debt. That's why Colossians 2, 13 and 14 uses this language. He says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. All our transgressions, past, present, and future. All of them were judged. And listen, all of our sins were future from the time of the death of Christ upon the cross. He judged for all. He was judged for all sins in the past, but at the time of his death, he was judged for all of our sins. And so God reaches into past and present, takes all of our sins, and judges them upon Christ upon the cross. Notice the language here, having canceled out the certificate of debt, because we were indebted to God. We, pay, we had a debt we could not pay. We had a debt that we could not pay. And... Um, So he canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way. What? Having nailed it to the cross. Having nailed it to the cross. So now we've looked at two imputations, and one is the imputation of Adam's original sin to all humanity. The imputation of all of humanity's sins to Christ upon the cross. Now we come to the third one, which is the imputation of God's righteousness to those who believe in Jesus for salvation. The imputation, the crediting, the imputing of God's righteousness, the gifting of God's righteousness to us at the moment of faith in Christ. In Romans uh, 4, verses 3 through 5, Paul says, For what does the Scripture say? Because this is based upon the truth of God's Word. It is a revelation to us. And what does it say? That Abraham believed God and that it was credited, credited to him as righteousness. Now, Paul draws a contrast here, and you, you have to follow me on this. This is, you, this is I know we're packing a lot into this, but follow me here. He says, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. Now, what's Paul doing here? He's giving a comparison that, we, that when we think about in the human realm of working a job, to the one who works a 40-hour work week, we might put it this way, to, to the one who works a 40-hour work week, his paycheck, his wage, is not regarded as a favor. And the word favor here translates the Greek noun kodos. Kodos, it's the word we get for grace or gift. Uh, his wage is not credited as a uh, favor, as grace or as a gift, but what is due him. So when I work every two weeks, I put my employer in debt and my employer alleviates that debt by, by depositing money to my checking account. And so we come back to zero. And then we start the process over again where I put them in debt. But when my employer puts money into my checking account, they're not being kind to me. It's not kindness. It's not a, a special favor. It's not grace. It's what is due to me, what they owe me. Please do not take that same truth and apply that to our relationship with God. That is, that is a different program. That is a different, a different uh, way that we relate to God. And that's what Paul's getting at here. You cannot take that way of thinking and apply that to your salvation. And unfortunately, that's what people do all the time. 
They do it all the time. They say, oh, well, I'll just do some works. You know, I'll follow the Ten Commandments and I'll live a good moral life and I'll give to some charity or I'll, you know, I'll do something something of that nature and God will let me into heaven. You know, that's not how we're saved. Remember Isaiah 64, 6, that all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. But Paul says in verse 5, but to the one who does not work, underscore that, highlight that, circle that, put little asterisks around that, because that is so clear to the one who does not work. We do not work for salvation. Now, as Christians, we are to work out our salvation, Paul says. Work out your salvation, but we are not working for our salvation. And as Christians, we are called to a life of works. We are called to a life of good works. Ephesians 2.10, Titus 2.11-14. Uh, uh, we are called to a life of good works. But good works should follow salvation, but they are never, never, never the condition of it. It is the work of Christ and Christ alone. Notice what Paul says here, but to the one who does not work, but what? Believes in him. And again, faith does not save. Christ saves. Uh, Faith is merely the instrument or the means by which we receive salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved. By grace, undeserved, unmerited kindness. By grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith. Faith does not save. Faith is not a work. Faith is not a work. Faith does not save. Christ saves. Faith is merely the instrument by which we receive that. You are saved, for by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. Salvation is the gift of God. It's the gift of God. If you have to pay for it in any way, it's not a gift. It's not a gift. It means you bought it. But it is a gift paid in full by the Lord Jesus who hung upon the cross and bore our sin. So again, Paul says, But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. In Romans 5.17, Paul calls it the gift of righteousness. Please understand, it's a gift. It's a gift. God gives it to us freely by his grace. It is a gift Paul says in Philippians 3, 8 and 9, more than that, I count all things to be lost, talking about his life of, uh, in Judaism uh, as a Pharisee. He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in, the view, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, all things, and count them but rubbish. And that's the Greek word skubalon, which means um, fecal matter, <laughs> human excrement. You can put in other words if you want. Uh, but it, he says, and I count them all but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And notice verse 9, and may be found in him, in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Paul is not concerned about personal righteousness. Now, as a result of of a life of as a believer, pursuing a life of righteousness, yes. And again, good works should follow salvation, but they're never the condition of it. He says, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. The righteousness which comes from God 
on the basis of faith. So God's imputed righteousness, not human works, is the basis for divine acceptance. So we've looked at these three. The imputation of Adam's original sin to all humanity, okay? The imputation of all humanity's sin to Christ upon the cross. And finally, the imputation of God's righteousness to us at the moment of faith in Christ. Very important to understand. Now, in the fourth category of righteousness in the Bible, we see imparted righteousness. Imparted righteousness. Now, concerning imparted righteousness, Lewis Berry Chafer, and here I'm quoting from major Bible themes, he says, quote, When filled with the Spirit, the child of God will produce the righteous works, and the fruit, and, and the fruit of the Spirit... Uh, well, excuse me, let me start over again. When filled with the Spirit, the child of God will produce the righteous works of the fruit of the Spirit, and will manifest the gifts of service which are by the Spirit. These results are distinctly said to be due to the immediate working of the Spirit in and through the believer, end quote. So the Christian is called to a life of righteousness. That's true. And I, I love righteousness. I want to walk in righteousness. I want to please my Father. I want to live a life of faith. So the Christian is called to a life of righteousness, which means that he thinks and lives in conformity with God's commands. It means that he thinks and lives in conformity with God's commands. Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Notice verse 12, Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live righteously and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. I want to be that person. I want to walk with God. I want to live out the Christian life, to advance to maturity and to live by faith. I want that. I want that. But it is one of those things where, um, again, good works should follow salvation, but they're never the condition of it. Now, obedience to God is really impossible in the energy of the flesh. However, the believer who surrenders his life to God, learns his word, is filled with the Spirit, walks in the Spirit, regularly confesses his sin, lives by faith, and uses time wisely, will glorify God through a righteous life. Now, I've cruised through these last points here because I'm going to unpack them in a little more detail as we move into the subject of sanctification. As we move into the subject of sanctification. So let's talk about sanctification. We're talking about phase two of the Christian life. And by the way, there's three aspects of sanctification. There's positional sanctification, experiential sanctification, and ultimate sanctification. Again, positional sanctification, experiential sanctification, and ultimate sanctification. I have used other terms. I've talked about justification, sanctification, glorification. Those are also terms that are used. We are said to be saved from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. The first and third are completely the work of God. Sanctification, phase two of the Christian life, experiential sanctification, means that we have to have some skin in the game because you're never going to grow up apart from your decisions daily to submit yourself to God, to learn His Word and to live His Word and to advance to spiritual maturity. That is what we are called to, and that requires us to make many, many decisions, dozens of decisions, sometimes hundreds of decisions every day, all of our Christian life. 
Sanctification translates the Hebrew word kadosh and the Greek word hagios. Uh, these are the nouns. We'll also see the verb form hagiadzo as we work through this, hagiadzo. And the words basically mean to be set apart for sacred use, to be set apart for sacred use. We, use, we see kadosh. A kadosh also used in the Hebrew Old Testament with regard to the temple, like where you have the outer room, which is the kodesh, and then you have the veil, and behind that is the holy of holies, or the kodesh hakodashim, and you have this holy place that's set apart for God. Well, you had certain instruments, or not instruments, but articles, uh, furniture, that was in the tabernacle, in the temple, that was used, that was set apart for holy use. You see that, for example, over in Exodus 29.1. He says, then you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments uh, and on his sons and on his son's sons. And so he and his garments shall be consecrated. There's Kadosh, shall be consecrated as well as his sons and his son's garments with him. And so we see the use of this also in Exodus 29, 37. For seven days you shall make atonement for the altar. And here the altar, uh, it says, and consecrate it, that is Kadosh. And then the altar shall be most holy. There's our uh, word there, Kodesh. And so we see where this word means to be set apart uh, for sacred or special use. It is also a synonym for believers. In 1 Corinthians 2.1, we have uh, believers uh, who are in Corinth. Uh, And it's just a synonym for being a Christian, where they are described as saints, as saints by calling. And there we have the use of the Greek uh, adjective there, hagios, hagios. And so it's just simply a synonym for a believer in that particular context. Now, there are three aspects of sanctification with regard to persons. One is our positional sanctification. This refers to our being positionally identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6:11 but some were such of but such were some of you but you were washed you were sanctified but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God according to Chafer and here I'm quoting major bible themes he says quote every born again person is as much a saint the moment he is saved as he ever will be in time or eternity The whole church, which is his body, is a called-out, separate people. They are saints of this dispensation, end quote. Positional sanctification, to be clear, does not imply sinless perfection. It does not. Uh, It does not imply sinless perfection. Uh, The Christians at Corinth were regarded as saints by calling, yet they were by no means perfect. Uh, Read 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and you will see what I'm talking about. Uh, They were saints who sinned, and that's true for all of us, because Christians do sin. We still continue with the sin nature, and we still continue to produce sin in in this life. Uh, And as we advance to maturity, we will sin less. We will never become perfect in this life, but we will sin less, and righteousness will become more and more characteristic of the maturing believer. But of the Christians at Corinth, they were said to be guilty of childish quarrels, carnality, tolerating sinful behavior, and even selfishness and drunkenness. The second aspect of sanctification is experiential. Experiential. 
And here the believer chooses to walk closer to God. You see, this is where we have some skin in the game, to where our sanctification starts with God, it starts with His calling, His directing us to be set apart, to live righteous lives, to be holy, and He he imparts to us a spiritual gift. He gives to us His Word, which is the basis for our ability to learn His will and to walk in it. He gives us the indwelling of the Spirit, allows us to be filled with the Spirit, calls us to walk in the Spirit. Uh, But we must say yes to His provision. We must say yes to His provision. So here the believer chooses to walk closer to God in conformity with His will. Our experiential sanctification starts with our union with Christ. That is the starting point. And increases by the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has a sanctifying work. 1 Peter 1-2 speaks of the sanctifying work of the Spirit uh, within us, uh, directing us to obey Jesus Christ. Um, so we see it, it increases by the work of the Spirit, by our choice, by our choice, because we must say yes to the Spirit's leading. In Romans 6-19, Paul says, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, notice the volition here, resulting in further lawlessness. Notice what he says here. So now present your members, and this is a a choice that we make, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in what? Sanctification. Hagiosmos. There's there's the noun. Hagiosmos. Um, So when we present our members as slaves to righteousness, this results in our sanctification. Um, Earlier I said hagios was the the noun, that's the adjective. So we have hagios the adjective, hagiosmos the noun, and hagiazo the verb. And so in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy, hagios, yourselves also in all your behavior. Uh, Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So again, we are called to that. We are called to that. And so it is by the work of the Holy Spirit, by our choice, and by our submission, because we submit ourselves to God. Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present, there's an act of the will, to present your bodies a living and what? Holy, excuse me, a holy sacrifice. Uh, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And it is also by means of our growth, 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word that by it you might grow, 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this as we learn and live God's word by faith. You cannot advance to spiritual maturity apart from learning God's word. And living it out by faith, it's a two-step process. You learn it, you live it, because you cannot live what you do not know. And learning God's Word necessarily precedes living God's will. I have said that 10,000 times, and people who know my teaching have heard me say that over and over and over again, because in principle it's true. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 9, How can a young man keep his way pure? Notice what he says, By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word have I treasured in my heart 
that I may not sin against you. John 17, 17. Jesus praying to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. There's the verb hagiadzo. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The word of God is the basis for our training in righteousness. It is our manual for righteousness, uh, whereby we understand the royal family honor code and we understand what it is that God expects of us so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Do you want to do good works? Learn the Word of God. Learn what that means. And then follow those directives. And as you follow those directives, you will live the righteous life, and you will produce a life of good works. The third aspect of salvation is the ultimate sanctification, uh, which occurs when God transfers us to heaven, removing our sin nature to spend eternity with Him. And this is our glorification, in which we are saved ultimately from the presence of sin. Ephesians 5, 26 and 27, that he might sanctify her. And here is the use of the verb hagiadzo again. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that we should be holy and blameless. Now let's talk about the means of salvation, uh, sanctification, the means of sanctification. And I'm going to go through this somewhat uh, quickly here in this material. But please understand, this material that I'm about to go through, I am currently teaching in my home Bible study group. And currently we are 10 hours uh, covering this material. And I perceive that we will have two more lessons. So this will be uh, at least 12 hours of material covering what I'm about to cover here in just a few minutes. This is found on both my podcast, which is Thinking on Scripture, and my blog, if you want it, the simplified version, go to my blog, thinkingonscripture.com, thinkingonscripture.com, and you'll see at the top, you'll see a tab that says audio and video files. If you click on that, that will then take you to uh, a series of lessons that I'm currently teaching called Living the Spiritual Life. Living the Spiritual Life. Thinking on Scripture, go to the tab at the top, Audio and Video. Uh, Click on that, go to the Audio Files, Living the Spiritual Life, and you will be able to find the unpacked 12-hour, at least 12-hour version of what I'm about to cover here. So I unpack this in greater detail, but I'm going to fly through this as best I can. Okay? But if you want the longer version, it's there for you. It's also in my book. Um, uh, This is lifted out of my book, uh, Tares Among the Wheat. So this material is taken from my book, Tares Among the Wheat, Living Righteously in a Fallen World. Now, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all holy, eternally sanctified, and set apart from sin. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, we learn that the Father himself sanctifies us, that the Father himself sanctifies us. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, Hagiadzo. We also learn that the Son sanctifies us. I just covered that in Ephesians 5.25 and 26. We also see in uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.13 where we are sanctified by means of the Spirit. 
sanctified by the Spirit. And so all three members of the Godhead are, uh, part, are working to sanctify us. And we may sanctify God. We may sanctify Him. Matthew 6, 9, pray in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name, Hagiazo, the verb. And so we recognize that God is holy, and we set him apart as holy in our lives. And so we don't put anything else in that place. God is to be uh, set apart within ourselves as holy, 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify Christ, sanctify, Hagiazo, there's the verb form, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify him as Lord in your hearts. And so this is something that we do, and we can sanctify ourselves. We can we participate in it because we say yes to God the Father. We say yes to God the Son. We say yes to God the Holy Spirit, and we we submit ourselves to God. Romans twelve one again. Um, Present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice to God. First uh, Peter one fifteen and sixteen. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all all your behavior. So. God seeks to sanctify us. We can sanctify God in our hearts, and we must sanctify ourselves by, by setting ourselves apart uh, for special use by the Lord. We submit ourselves to the Lord. We stand at attention, and we salute, and we say, Yes, Lord, ready to serve, ready to serve. So the steps to sanctification, uh, these following steps are instrumental in bringing about our spiritual growth and sanctification. Number one, we must be in submission to God. We must be in submission to God. And I get this point number one from Dr. Charles Ryrie's uh, book, uh, uh, Balancing the Christian Life, I think is the title of it, Balancing the Christian Life. And so this is where it really starts because we must um, uh, submit ourselves to God. And James 4, 7 says, submit to God. Submit, hupotasso, is a Greek verb. It's a military term, actually, that means to rank under. It means to it means you're an and it means you're a subordinate that you subordinate yourself to a superior, and so we submit ourselves to God. Romans twelve one present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Being in submission to God is a sign that we've prioritized our relationship with Him above all else, and that we trust Him to guide and to provide. And I have made it a discipline. And much of the Christian life is a discipline. It, it is a discipline of mind, and it is a discipline of will. And we develop habits over time. And I learned uh, much of this discipline from my grandmother, who was a very, very godly woman. Not perfect, uh, none of us are, but she modeled a disciplined life. And uh, she used to tell us to ha- be disciplined. And I didn't quite understand that at the age of eight. And I, I asked her one time, I said, what do you mean, Grandma? And she said, discipline is doing what you ought to do whether you want to do it or not, because it's right. Discipline is doing what you ought to do, whether you want to do it or not, because it's right. And so she had an apt way of saying things, and it stuck with me. And uh, she was a blessing that way. But when I wake up in the morning, immediately, uh, right out of the gate, uh, I want to give thanks to God. My very first thought of the day uh, wants to start with, thank you, Father, for this day. And I want to, in within myself, uh, stand, at a, stand at attention, as it were, and set the whole day with, I want to walk with you. I, I want to learn from you. I want to be in submission to you. 
And I want your word to speak to all of my life. I want it to speak to my marriage. I want it to speak to my finances, to my social values, to my, to my work values, to all of life. And I want all of my life to come uh, uh, in submission to you. Now, there are times where we sin, and when we sin, we obviously break that. We step out of that, and I'll address that here in a little bit. By the way, it's never the will of God that we sin. But when we sin, and we do, it is always His will that we handle it in a biblical way, and that by means of confession. And I'll discuss that more here in a little bit. We are also to continually study God's Word. Again, we're talking about the steps to sanctification. What What is it that we must obligate ourselves to do? Uh, I think of Ezra the priest, who in Ezra 7.10, it says that he had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. There's three aspects to that. He set his heart. He determined within himself. He resolved to set his heart to study the law of the Lord. In law, there's Torah. It's the divine instruction. It's the divine viewpoint. And not just to study it, but to practice it, to put it into application. And not only that, but to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Well, as a Christian, I want to learn it. I want to live it. And I want to communicate it. And if you know me, among my friends, among my family, among my church members, at the prison where I teach, at work. I'm talking scripture with people. I am trying to communicate it because I'm not neutral and I want to have that godly influence. I want to be a light in a dark world. And we do that by not only learning and living that out, but by communicating that to others. And so we see in Psalm 1-2, speaking of the godly man, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his light and in his law he meditates day and night, to meditate, Hagah, to fill the mind uh, with divine truth. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth. First Peter 2 2, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation. Second Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The reality is we cannot live what we do not know, and learning God's word necessarily precedes living his will. But learning it is no guarantee that we will live it. We must live by faith. Faith is a verb. Pistuo means to believe. It's a transitive verb, uh, which means that it demands a direct object. And so if you were standing on a street corner and I came running up to you and said, do you believe? Well, you'd look at me and you'd say, believe what? Because you understand that, uh, that it's a transitive verb. I mean, we understand that just naturally by the usage of the word. And so it means to have, uh, to believe, to trust, or to have confidence in someone or something. And so, you know, people say, oh, just believe. Well, that's a nonsensical statement. I mean, it, you have to have something upon which or in whom to believe. It is used of trust in God that Hebrews eleven six. well, Hebrews 10, 35, 10, 38, God says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. My righteous one shall live by faith. Uh, Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Uh, it is used of trust in God. It is used of trust in Jesus. When the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, What must I do to be saved? 
The response came back, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Uh, it is also used of faith in Scripture, John 2.22, uh, speaking of his disciples, that they remembered that Jesus had said this, and they believed the Scripture. So we believe in God. We believe in Jesus as our Savior. We believe in Scripture. And, of course, uh, living by faith means that we trust God at his word. Again, Hebrews 10.38, But my righteous one shall live by faith. There's negative aspects to our sanctification, things we must not do. The Apostle John warns Christians, do not love the world. 1 John 2.15, by the way, this command would be superfluous if it were not a, a, a real possibility and a real danger. Because as believers, we still have a sin nature, and there is that uh, natural proclivity uh, to be drawn to the things of this world. And Satan has a world system, a set of philosophies and values that he promotes through his world system. And if the devil were a broadcaster sending out his message into the world, our sin nature would be that internal receiver that is automatically tuned to that message and is receptive to that. And so John says, do not love the world nor the things of the world. He uses the word cosmos here. He's not talking about the physical planet. That translates the Greek word ge. Uh, but here he uses cosmos, which is a world system. It's a system of philosophy, a system of values, a system of teachings. So he says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from God, but is from the world. So in scripture, the world uh, cosmos here most often refers to those philosophies and values that perpetually influence humanity to think and behave contrary to God and his word. It is a way of thinking, really, it starts with a way of thinking, that originates with Satan. And as James 3.15 tells us, it is earthly, natural, demonic. We are also told, do not quench the spirit. Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica and said, do not quench the spirit. The word quench translates the Greek word spanumi, which means to suppress or to stifle and carries the idea of dousing water on a fire so as to extinguish it. The quenching of the Spirit is to resist His revealed will and not to follow as He leads. The Holy Spirit wants to work in our lives. However, He does not force us to be spiritual and can be resisted. And so quenching the Spirit is when we say no to the Spirit, to His leading, which is always in accordance with His Word, with His revealed Word. And so quenching the Spirit is when we say no to the Spirit. Grieving the Spirit would be the flip side of that coin because grieving and quenching the Spirit are like two sides of a coin. They go together, sometimes like a hand in a glove. So we quench the Spirit when we say no to the Spirit. We grieve the Spirit when we actually produce sin. So the first aspect is we say no to the Spirit's leading, but we say yes to sin. Uh, so Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus and in Ephesians 4.30, he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, the Spirit is a person, and he is grieved with us as Christians when we sin and act contrary to his holy character. When the Christian commits sin, then the Spirit is grieved, and his ministry to others is diminished. And the Spirit must then begin to work on the heart of the Christian to bring, to bring us back into fellowship with him. We restore broken fellowship. Listen, we can produce sin, but we cannot bring about fellowship. Only God can restore us back into fellowship. So we restore broken fellowship with God through confession of personal sin. Through confession of personal sin. 
All believers sin, and there are none who attain perfection in this life. For this reason, familial forgiveness, familial forgiveness, and I unpack that uh, more in more detail in my book, Tears Among the Wheat, uh, and also in my series on living the spiritual life, but it's to be distinguished between a judicial forgiveness. We receive judicial forgiveness at the cross uh, when we come before God as judge, okay? We come before him as judge of all the earth, and we come and we receive judicial forgiveness. Well, once we're in the family of God, we will never be condemned, but we can break fellowship with God by means of sin. And what we need is ongoing familial forgiveness. Ongoing familial forgiveness. That's ongoing. So for this reason, familial forgiveness is necessary for a healthy relationship with God. And so when we confess our sins, forgiveness, God forgives and fellowship is restored. First John 1 John 1.9. And the if there is a third class condition in the Greek, which means maybe we will and maybe we won't. It's conditional. It's based upon us. If we confess our sins, and confess here from the Greek word homologeo means to name, to cite, and it's specific. I don't come to God and just say, oh, Father, forgive me. Uh, I mean, forgiveness is what I want. Confession is how I get it. I come and I name the sin. And let's be honest, you know when you sin. You know when you lie. You know when you lust. You know when you curse. You know when you steal. You know when you're being hateful and committing acts of mental murder. You know. You know. Don't, you know, be honest with God, okay? He knows. Be honest with Him. Name the sin. When I come to God and I confess, I name Him. I say, Father, I lied. You know it. I know it. I'm wrong. And I come before your throne of grace. And Hebrews 4.16 tells us that it is a throne of grace. It's not a throne of judgment. And Hebrews 4.16 says, Come boldly before His throne of grace. Uh, that we may receive grace and mercy to help in time of need. And so I come and I say, Father, I, I come before your throne of grace. Be merciful to me, Lord. Be merciful to me. And he is always. He is so merciful. He is so forgiving and so kind and so loving and so patient. My goodness. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful. He always does the same thing. And he's righteous because Christ has borne that sin upon the cross. He's righteous, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now later on in five in first John five, sixteen and seventeen, he says all unrighteousness is sin. And I understand that to mean that when I confess the sins I know about, he not only forgives those sins, but he forgives me of all the sins that I forgot about or may not have been aware of. Because God is perfect and when he forgives, he forgives perfectly. Positively we are told to be filled with the Spirit to be filled with the Spirit. Paul wrote to the Christians at Ephesus, he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And in the Greek, pleteruste, that's a present passive imperative. Present tense, ongoing action. So we are to continually keep on being filled with the Spirit. And to be filled with the Spirit does not mean that I have more of the Spirit at one time and less at another. It means the Spirit has more of me. We might put it this way. We might say to be filled with the Spirit means that the Spirit is fulfilling in us all that He desires. It is when the Spirit is fulfilling in us all that He desires. And so it means being under His control. It means being directed by God's Word. And being filled with the Spirit does not mean that we have more of Him, but that He has more of us. To walk in the Spirit, this is another aspect. So once we're filled with the Spirit, we are then to walk in the Spirit. 
And to walk, peripateo, uh, is a picture of all that we think and all that we say and all that we do. It's all of our life. It's all of our production. And so when we talk about walking, it's a picture of what we think, what we say, and what we do, that we live out the Christian life. Walk by the Spirit, by means of the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So in this passage, walking, peripateo, is a metaphor for daily living. The Spirit most often guides us directly by Scripture, helping us to know the Word of God and to recall it when needed for guidance. Except trials. God uses trials to help us grow spiritually. In Romans 5, uh, Paul says, We also exalt in our tribulations knowing it's a causal participle because we know something. We know that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character. And listen, God is more concerned about your Christian character than he is with your creaturely comforts. And he wants you to grow up and suffering and trials in this life are a vehicle, a means that God uses to help expedite our spiritual growth. And suffering in a very general way, there's nuances to this, but in a very general way, it can be corrective to get us into the will of God. And once we're in the will of God, uh, if suffering is not removed, then it becomes perfective to help advance us in our walk with the Lord. James 1, 2 through 4, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Poikilois pe rosmos. The word poikilois is the word we get for polka dots, and it means that trials come in a variety of, of shapes and sizes and colors. But we are to count it all joy. This is a faith response, not a feeling response. By faith, we count it all joy when we encounter various trials, knowing, again, a causal participle. Because you know, you know what? That the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect. And here the word perfect uh, translates the Greek word teleos, which might better be rendered mature, mature, and complete, lacking in nothing. And by the way, I would tie the word joy here with the word knowing, because uh, we know something. We don't... You know, Paul, excuse me, the writer of the Hebrews in 12 says, all suffering for the moment is not joyful, but sorrowful. Experientially, that's true. But we can count it joy because we know something. We know that it's producing something in us. It's like people that go to the gym and work out. What's the saying? No pain, no gain. So when trials come our way, God's calling us to the gym. That's what he's doing. He's calling us to the gym. And he's saying, all right, it's time for a workout. Okay, and uh, so this is your opportunity to grow. This is your opportunity to shine. And so it becomes, we have to frame it that way. So we accept God's trials. So the growing believer learns to praise God in and for the trials, knowing that he uses them to strengthen our faith and to develop us spiritually into spiritually mature Christians. And trials can make us bitter or they can make us better depending upon how we respond to them. Uh, We are also to pray to God. Prayer is an essential uh, uh, aspect of our spiritual growth, as we need to have upward communication with God to express ourselves to Him. Prayer is the means by which we make requests to God, believing that He has certain answers ready for us and that we just need to ask Him. James 4.2 says, You do not have because you do not ask. Now that tells me that God has some things ready for me that He wants to give to me. Uh, that are conditioned upon my requesting. Well, that motivates me (laughs) to ask, and I ask for a lot of things. 
Uh, you know, if he says you don't have, and why? Because you don't ask. Now he says you ask and don't receive because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your sinful pleasures, your lusts. Uh, so there's other reasons why he didn't answer. But trust me, I'm going to ask. And I think there's a lot of things God has for us. I think he wants us to grow up and to reach maturity. And as I've used the illustration before, uh, I think there's some things that God, some blessings that God has for us. We just have to reach that place of maturity to lay hold of it. You know, a father may have a car set aside for his uh, daughter, but he's not going to give it to her at the age of five. She has to reach a level of maturity, physical and mental and emotional maturity before he hands her the keys. Because if he gives her that blessing at a younger age, the very thing that she wants would be the very thing that would destroy her if she had it. And so I think that God has certain blessings that he has for us that are conditioned upon our reaching levels of maturity. This also motivates me to grow up, that I can lay hold of those blessings, those things that God has for me. And Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And God wants us to have an abundant life, but we have to grow up in order to become responsible stewards of those resources, those assets that he wants to give to us that we can be blessed with, but can also be used for his glory and the edification of others. Scripture directs us to pray without ceasing and to pray at all times in the Spirit. To pray in the Spirit means that we are in agreement with the Spirit's leading. Number 12, worship and give thanks to God. To give thanks, eukatasteo uh, from the Greek, is to have a daily attitude of gratitude toward God for his goodness and mercy toward us. I believe that happiness is an attitude. It is a choice that we make. And so it is having that daily attitude of gratitude toward God for his goodness and mercy. Part of this attitude comes from knowing, Romans 8.28, that God works all things together, um, that God works all things and I have a typo in here, which I'll need to correct, that God works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And God does this because he is for us. Romans 8.31 tells us that God is for us. He's not just with us, he's for us. How wonderful. Fellowship with other believers is key to our spiritual development. The writer to the Hebrews states, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Spiritual growth ideally happens within within a community, as God expects us to exercise our spiritual gift for the benefit of others. We are to serve others in love. Uh, we are to we are part of the body of Christ, and God calls us to love and to serve each other. Paul wrote in Galatians five thirteen, "You were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another." Galatians six ten says, "While we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith." In First Peter four ten, Peter says, "As each one has received a special gift." employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. As Christians, we are told, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves, and do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And 15, take advantage of the time that God gives. Take advantage. Time is a resource and we should manage it properly. 
you know, I'm up now. It's 5.15. I've been up since 2.30 this morning. That's my habit. I go to bed at 6 and get up about 2, 2.30. And I have usually three to four hours of Bible study time. Today I'm using it to record this uh, this Bible lesson. But I want to be a good steward of this resource that God has given me called time. Time. It is a resource and it must be managed properly. Ephesians 5.15, Paul says, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. And God has determined the length of our day. Psalm 139, verse 16 says, where David says of God, You have ordained all the days of my life, when as yet there was not one of them. And so from beginning to end, God knows when we come into this world and when we leave this world, and that is always by His sovereign will. And so we want to treat every moment as precious, and our days should not be wasted on meaningless pursuits, but on learning God's Word, living His will, and loving others. And three obstacles to a sanctified life include our sin nature, the devil, and Satan's world system. And so we face three fronts. We battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And these I also unpack in my book, uh, Tears Among the Wheat, Living Righteously in a Fallen World. So next time we pick up, we're going to move into the assurance of our salvation. Now, I know I've covered a lot in today's lesson. I've packed a lot in there. Uh, You have the study notes. Uh, You have this recording, both in audio and uh, video format. So you can go back and review these scriptures if need be. I hope that today's lesson has been helpful to you, that you have benefited from some of the material presented here today. And I thank you very much, and I wish you a good day.